Our God and our Father, as we come before you now to hear your word, we pray that you would pour out your Spirit upon us. Open our eyes, our Father, that we might see Jesus Christ in His glory, in His sufficiency as our Savior. And if there be any here this morning who do not yet know Him, O Lord, we pray that you would open their blind eyes and unstop their deaf ears and quicken their dead hearts, that they might see Him, and in seeing Him, find life within their souls springing up forever and ever. Restore the backslider, we pray, and build us all up in faith, hope, and love. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please take your seats, and if you would, turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to John's Gospel and chapter 1 and verse 19. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, Nope. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, literally, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him then, why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit." And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but this is the Word of God. It endures forever. Well, assumptions can be dangerous. You've heard the the famous saying, be careful what you assume or you'll make an ass, a donkey out of you and me, right? Assumptions can be dangerous. When I was in medical school, and bear in mind this was 30 years ago now, Uh, 33 years ago when I joined medical school for the first time. Um, No, 34 years ago. Uh, It's a long time ago, uh, shortly after Noah left the ark. But um, (laughs) back then, a physician was talking once about assumptions. um, And he was an orthopedic surgeon. 
And orthopedic surgeons back then were universally male. Um, I remember a senior physician joked once that you can describe orthopedic surgery and sometimes their bedside manner in three words, blunt force trauma. Uh, no offense to orthopedic surgeons in our midst this morning, of which there are several. Um, but the physician was talking about the danger of an assumption, making assumptions in the diagnostic process. He tells a story. He says, a man and his son are in a car, and they have a terrible car wreck, and they're both severely injured and taken to ER. Uh, the son especially is critical. He's multiple fractures, and he's whisked off into surgery. The orthopedic surgeon walks into the operating room, takes one look at the boy, and says, I'm sorry, I can't operate on this lad. He is my son. Who is the surgeon? We all start thinking. Well, was his father his real father? Maybe he's an adopted father, and, and the, 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 the surgeon is his real father, and all this kind of permutations, and the, 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 the mental gymnastics we came to, and after five minutes of this, the surgeon looked at us and said, what are you assuming, you idiot? And we were all going, uh, you're assuming the surgeon is a man. The surgeon is his mother. We go, oh, right. <laughs> Assumptions can be dangerous, and we all make assumptions every day. You went to bed last night in Colombia, Saturday night, you woke up this morning and you expected to be Sunday morning and again in Colombia, not Bogota. We assume certain things about the universe. You might call those assumptions our worldview, and every worldview has a number of different components. Now, I don't want to get too philosophical. It is 9.17 in the morning, and some of you are barely caffeinated yet. And so, um, but we make assumptions like the question of origin, how did life begin? Uh, the question of meaning and purpose, what's life all about? Uh, the question of ethics, how should I live my life? The question of evil, what's wrong with the world? The question of redemption, how can that wrong be set right? And of course, the question of destiny, where is it all going to end up in the end? And every human being, religious, secular, and everything in between, we have answers to those questions. You can't really live your life without some kind of an answer at least lurking behind the scenes about that question. And in particular, the two questions, what is wrong with the world and how can it be fixed? The question of evil and redemption are key questions. And most people in our culture, when it comes to answering the question, what's wrong with the world, we tend to think what's wrong with the world is other people, right? That evil is a force outside of me trying to get in. The Bible presents a very different solution or diagnosis, that evil isn't something on the outside of you trying to get in, that evil is actually something on the inside of us trying to get out as Solzhenitsyn famously said, the line of good and or the line of evil runs through every human heart. Now, this morning in our text, we meet men making assumptions, Sadducees and Pharisees. The priests and Levites from the Sadducee party in Jerusalem are coming to John, another delegation from the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the old money in Jerusalem. They ran the temple complex. They were concerned about power and order in worship. And the Pharisees, they were concerned about right and wrong. After the exile, 
Um, the Pharisees came forward slowly in the years after the return from Israel, uh, from, from, from exile in Babylon, and the Pharisees basically were concerned for re religious reformation in Israel. They were concerned about law-keeping, doing right, and not doing wrong. We don't want the exile to happen again was basically their mindset. And they had 300 and they had 613 laws that they, that they um, added to the Old Testament Scriptures and over 1,500 emendations to try and help people keep the law. They were very concerned about obedience. So when it said, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord, Yahweh, in vain, they said, don't even mention the name of Yahweh at all. When it said, don't look with lust upon a, a woman, they would, when the woman walked by, they would refuse to look at her at all. They would look at their feet and walk on. The most extreme of them were called the bleeding Pharisees because of frequent collisions with trees and walls and other objects. When it came to breaking the Sabbath or keeping the Sabbath, they added 39 rules to define what was work, like carrying anything heavier than a dried fig. That is work. And they had all these rules to make the law keepable, observable. And the central assumption they're making was that they must do something to fix what sin is broken. That's a very, very common assumption to be made. Now, they're coming to John with assumptions. They think the big question is, who is John? John is this young preacher. He's come to the fore, and the world are going out from Jerusalem and Judea to be baptized, every Tom, Dick, and Harry. And the Pharisees are saying, we just can't have this, right? Because we've got to have order. We can't have any Tom, Dick, or Harry baptizing any Tom, Dick, or Harry. So they want to find out who is John and what right does he have to be preaching these things and doing these things. And their mind, that is the key question. And in many ways, the Christian church today is consumed by questions. How should we worship God? Should it be traditional worship or contemporary worship? Who do we baptize? Do we baptize believers and their children, or do we just baptize believers? How should the church be run? By elders or by deacons or by a mixture of elders and deacons? Lots of questions like these, and these questions are important. But they're not the key question. They're not the central question. And these Pharisees are distracted by an important question, who is John? But they're missing the, the big question, that, which is, who is Christ? And John bends over backwards to point away from himself to Jesus. Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. It's very emphatic. Well, what then are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet from Deuteronomy 18? Nope. It's, it's almost comical. John's giving like one word. It's like an awkward teenager just giving one word answers. And they're getting frustrated. Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John's answer is just a beautiful picture of humility. I am a voice. Simply, not even the voice, a voice in the Greek, crying out in the wilderness. The whole meaning and purpose of my life isn't even, even, isn't even found in my mouth, it's found in the words I say that point to Jesus. Prepare the way of the Lord. And they still don't get it. 
Now they've been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. In John's day, it was said that a disciple should fulfill all of the functions of a slave for his master, except untying his shoes. That's a step too low, covered in the urine of horses and dogs and feces and so forth. I'm not sorry. I'll do anything for you, master, but I'll not untie your sandals. And John says, before the Lord Jesus Christ, I am not even worthy of that job. But the bigger shock comes when he says, you're all worried about me, who I am. Later he'll say, I I saw the Spirit descend upon him like a dove. It's amazing. John had that vision when he baptized Jesus, but he doesn't even say, I was the one who baptized him, because that would draw attention to himself. He's just speaking about Christ. He's lost in the picture. It's amazing. And John's lost in the picture. The focus is fully on Jesus. And he says, among you stands one you do not know. Here's the, here are these religious experts, and they are consumed with the question, who is John? But there's a greater question. And you have a greater problem, John says. The one you need to know, you don't know. And you know, that can be a problem even here at First Presbyterian Church in our membership, among our covenant children, among mothers and fathers, even among our deacons and among, among our elders, even perhaps in our, among our ministers, it is possible to, to fulfill any office in the church and know an awful lot about God, but not actually to know Him, not actually to know Christ, to be busy doing church when the real thing in the Christian religion it's not about doing, it's about knowing the one who has done it all for us, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John comes to his climactic witness in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, see him. Have you seen him? Have you seen him with the eyes of faith? Have you seen His glory, His sufficiency, His majesty, that the Son of God became flesh and then became sin and then became cursed to save you from your sins? Is even the thought of being saved from sin, like you might say, big deal, He saves us from our sins. But my brother and sister this morning, my friend, sin is a very big deal because God is a big deal. In Psalm 5, the psalmist says, In the morning I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. 
It is the greatest miracle in all the world that I can preach to your God who loves sinners this morning because his default posture towards sin and those who commit it, the Lord hates all, not just what they do. He hates all who do iniquity, which means by right, he should hate me and he should hate you. And there's no greater reality in all the world than that your sins are taken away. Have they been taken away? Because if they've not been taken away, they are a load of weight upon your shoulders that will sink you down to the lowest hell when you die. Being a minister in this church won't fix the problem. Being an elder in this church won't fix the problem. Being a deacon won't fix it. Being a member won't fix it. You've got to see Christ and know Him. Have you? Behold the Lamb of the world who takes away the sin of the world. It's a problem of every nation, tribe, and tongue. No people group are immune. We have sinned against the Lord. We have broken His commandments. We have transgressed His laws. Our hearts are unclean and corrupt. Not just once or twice, but every intent of the thoughts of our heart is only evil continually. Do you believe that? We can be deceived by our goodness. But just imagine for a second this morning, let's just say I duct tape to your head a widescreen TV. You can fix anything with duct tape. And for the rest of the day, you and I will have to walk around and your thoughts, every thought you had was portrayed on that TV. How many friends would you have at the end of the day? Would your marriage survive the exposure? You certainly wouldn't survive a trip to Walmart. (laughs) People would be punching you in the nose left, right, and center. I can't believe she's wearing pajamas to Walmart. Did I think that? (laughs) Give me more duct tape. Um, Our hearts are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and evil-mindedness, whispering thoughts, evil heart thoughts, sexually immoral thoughts. We have no idea. I remember once I was driving, sorry, um, we were cycling, my friend of mine, a neighbor of mine in the place I used to live, not Greensboro. We were cycling around a lake and there were these girls who were jogging in front of us um, who were wearing what could only politely be called exercise underwear. It left nothing to the imagination. Now, I've been talking to my friend who wasn't a believer about sin and how serious sin was, and he just couldn't see that sin was that serious. And so we, I'm, I'm wrestling, I'm using all my, not, it's not working. We get behind these girls, and he said, oh, he said, if I wasn't with a pastor, I'd get off the bike now and walk and enjoy the view. And I said, what would your wife think if you heard you say those words. And he went, it'd be very bad. And I said, of course it would be. Don't you see, he said, you and your wife have very, very different assessments of sin, specifically the sin at looking at different, at at ladies who are not your wife in a state of undress. And you can understand perfectly, she sees things very differently from you. Let's go from your wife above and beyond the stars and all the constellations and nebulas and suns and galaxies in the cosmos to the throne room of heaven where the sun would appear as a dark spot. 
How do you think God views your sin and my sin? In that hallowed chamber where the angels hide their faces. You have placed our iniquities, the psalmist said, in the light of your presence. That's where you measure sin, not down here where sin looks normal and holiness looks frankly weird. You measure it in the throne room of God. And you and I have sin, and there's nothing you can do to fix the problem by yourself. Nothing. But God has provided a lamb. I think, he's going, I think John in his mind's eyes going back to Abraham. Remember when Abraham was going up the mountain to sacrifice, make a sacrifice, and there's the wood, and there's the fire, and Isaac says to his dad, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And remember what Abraham says, Son, God will provide for himself a lamb. And then things get pretty dicey for Isaac. Abraham says, okay, here's the wood. Climb up on the wood. Dad, this is looking a bit dodgy. Just on the wood. And Isaac's there. And then Abraham gets the knife, and he reaches the knife above his head to plunge into his son's heart. And then God says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham looks up. And God says, now that I know you love me, for you have not withheld your son, your only son whom you love. And God opened his eyes, and he saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket, you remember, and Abraham sacrificed the ram instead of Isaac. And John here is saying, God has provided a lamb, the lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world in general, but the sin of every sinner in this room, if you will look to him. God offers him to you, and the lamb is not the angels of heaven, not even the archangel. Michael or Gabriel, not the burning seraphim who live in his presence, not the cherubim who guard the near approach to God's holy presence, but the Lamb is none other than God's own darling Son. Only He can bear the weight of a burden that's as big as God. When you fall into an infinite hole, a bottomless hole, how long do you fall for? A wee small, a wee small trip but you'll fall forever because of the size of the hole, not the size of the trip. And the sin might be very small in your eyes, but there are no small sins before the infinite God of heaven. And one small sin will plunge you into a bottomless cavern of wrath and indignation because God is just, and He cannot deal unjustly with sin. It's got to be dealt with. And either you will bear the weight of it yourself, or it will fall upon Christ in your room and in your stead. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away, and the Greek is wonderful, is taking away. It's a present active verb that carries the idea of continual, ever ongoing action. He never stops. Every day, each fresh sin is removed. Each fresh stain is washed away. Each fresh offense is forgiven because of Jesus Christ and His love for you and because of the Father's love for you. And that's what's offered to you this morning. And you know, the greatest tragedy in all the world would be that you served in this church, you worked in this church, you sang in this church, maybe in the choir, Maybe you served as an elder, a deacon, as a pastor of this church, and you got to heaven, and you were busy doing all the wrong things, 
focusing on all the wrong people and to find out at last on the day of judgment that you are a sinner without a Savior. And this morning in this room, I tell you all now, that doesn't need to be the way it is. God has provided a lamb to take away the sin of the world, the sin of the terrorist, the sin of the prostitute, the sin of the child abuser, the pervert, the pornographer, the sin of the woman who had an abortion or the man who paid for the abortion and encouraged her to have it, the sin of children who are disrespectful to their parents, the sin of idolaters, rich sinners, poor sinners, and everything in between. There's no limit. There's no footnote saying these sins are accepted. He will take away the sin of the world. If you will look to Him, He will take away your sin. Come to Him and see Him. It's beautiful. Nothing to do. It's just to see. Look to Him in faith. That's it. Just look at Him. Just like the serpent raised in the moose. Look to Him and live. That's the gospel. It couldn't be simpler. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Jesus, Your choice Lamb. We pray, Father, that You would draw near to us this morning and draw our hearts to Jesus. Many of us here have come a thousand times to Him, and we come again this morning with the fresh stains of fresh sins on this Lord's Day. But maybe there are those here who've never come to Him, and we pray for them, Lord, have mercy and sprinkle not water upon their heads, but the blood of Jesus Christ that will cleanse them from each sin. No sin too foul, no habit too frequent to be washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Lord Jesus, come into this assembly. You've promised where two or three are gathered, there you'll be in in our midst. Come and save sinners, we pray this morning. We offer this in your all-prevailing name, in Christ. Amen.